Good morning, church. Good to be together with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, we're going to be in verses 12 through 22 this morning. Pastor Ben asked me to pick up where we left off from last week, and we finished off last week looking at the temptation of Jesus. And if last week had to do with the temptation of Jesus, then this message has to do with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And uh, that is enough for an introduction this morning, I hope. We're going to get right into the text. So take a look there, beginning at verse 12. We read in that verse, Now when he, Jesus, heard that John the Baptist, that is, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. We see here that Jesus withdrew into Galilee when he found out that John the Baptist had been thrown into jail. Now, in this immediate context, we don't know why it is that John was imprisoned. And the reason for that has to do with the fact that Matthew is not interested in giving those details at this point in his gospel account. However, once we get to chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel, it becomes clear why it was that John was thrown into prison. We learn there that what John, or what led to John's arrest, was his offering of a justified rebuke to a local political leader by the name of Herod the Tetrarch. What Herod had done was marry his brother's sister, i.e. he was guilty of incest. This was in direct violation of God's law as laid out in Leviticus 18 and 20. And so John let Herod know, saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Well, that earned John a one-way ticket to jail and eventually to capital punishment for him. So those are some of the details that Matthew will fill in for his readers later on in his book. But for now, he simply says that John had been arrested. And it was this arrest that was the circumstance that caused Jesus to withdraw into Galilee. Now, I read some commentaries that tried to get at the motivation of Jesus here. Did he do this because it was a wise decision? Uh, In other words, in learning that John had been arrested for being a faithful preacher, did Jesus think it was prudent to leave the area in which that kind of persecution was taking place? Well, it's possible, and of course it would be right in our assessment of our Lord that everything he did was according to wisdom, right? You should say amen to that. Just that Jesus is a wise man, yes. Thank you, Royce. Jesus never acted in a way that was outside the boundaries of wise action, we would say. So we could easily say that it was wise for Jesus to withdraw into Galilee after John was arrested. 
But what I'm not so convinced of is the idea that Matthew has an interest here in highlighting the wisdom of Jesus. Instead, what it seems that Matthew is doing here is showing the movement of Jesus into Galilee for the purpose of underscoring the fact that God's redemptive plan is moving forward. In other words, while John's ministry is fading into the background, Jesus' ministry is coming to the foreground. And I had the thought that this might be Matthew's way of saying what other gospel writers include in their accounts, where John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease. With John being imprisoned, his ministry has decreased. But this was God's redemptive purpose, to bring John to be a forerunner to the Messiah and once his work was finished God would move him to the background and move the star of salvation history to the front now let's take our journey through how Matthew wants to showcase Jesus in verse 13 we read And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The reference here that Matthew gives is to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. In that historical context, Zebulun and Naphtali were part of the northern kingdom of Israel. And to brush you up on your Old Testament history from the time of the division of the kingdom after King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two different kingdoms. It was the kingdom of the south, And the kingdom of the north. The kingdom of the south had their own kings and the kingdom of the north had their own kings. From the history recorded for us in the scripture, we learn that the northern kingdom, of which Zebulun and Naphtali were a part, had not a single good king. They were all evil. In fact, because of the pervasive wickedness of this dynasty, the northern kingdom was the first kingdom to be destroyed in Israel by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The effects of this destruction could be seen in Isaiah's day in that not only had those who survived the Assyrian invasion been carried off into exile, but also the Assyrians had populated Galilee with their own people. This is why Isaiah calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. The area that was once populated by God's people had been replaced by foreigners from another nation. But the significance of Isaiah's prophecy for this area of Galilee that contains these two tribal allotments of the northern kingdom, Zebulun and Naphtali, is that redemption will one day come. Though much darkness has characterized Galilee, a great light will one day penetrate that darkness and bring about restoration. 
this really is a beautiful prophecy from the Old Testament. And Matthew is no doubt desiring to capture this hopeful theme of redemption when he uses this passage to describe Jesus' movement into Galilee to do his ministry. But what Matthew makes explicit in his usage of this passage is that the light that was prophesied to one day come to Galilee is none other than the person and the work of the Messiah. This fits Matthew's purpose thus far in this book. He wants to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised to the nation of Israel. They need look nowhere else for another Messiah. They need but look to Jesus. He is the promised Redeemer. But catch this, Jesus is not just a redeemer for the people of Israel. He's a savior to Galilee of the Gentiles. And this fits Matthew's purpose as well. He wants to show that the Messiah is not just a savior of Israelites, but a savior of Gentiles, of people who are not Israelites. And the way Matthew does this is by making sure the readers remember, hey, you know your Messiah's ancestry contains Gentiles. Uh, Ruth, a Moabitess, she was a Gentile, and she's included in the list of Jesus' genealogy. And also Rahab, a harlot from Canaan, she was a Gentile, and she as well is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. That's Matthew chapter 1. And then here in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes into a land full of of Gentiles, and no doubt there were, there were Jewish people there, but there were Gentiles there as well. And that's the first place that Matthew shows Jesus going into to do his ministry. And then in Matthew chapter 8, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, demonstrates faith in the lordship of Christ when he asks for Jesus to perform a miracle for his paralyzed servant. Jesus responds to this Gentile centurion and says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then Jesus reveals that he is a savior for the Gentiles as well. And he says this, I tell you, many will come from east and west, that is, from Gentile countries, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That would have been Shocking to many Jews of Jesus' day. They, they would have considered Gentiles to not have equal fellowship with Jews in the Messianic kingdom. But Jesus says they will have the same privileges as the patriarchs of Israel. Jesus is a savior of the Gentiles as well. Now, time doesn't permit me to walk through the rest of these passages with a great deal of specificity. Um, but let me quickly note that in Matthew chapter 12, we have this Syrophoenician Canaanite woman. This is a Gentile who comes to Jesus, and she has this daughter that's possessed by a demon. And she cries out to Jesus, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And Jesus tests her and says that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And like a master of his house, he will not take his children's bread and feed it to the dogs. Well, then she responds 
Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus replied to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. This Gentile woman got it. She knew the Messiah was a Messiah for the Gentiles as well. And as we progress in the book of Matthew, we come to the 16th chapter of the gospel and Jesus begins to reveal to his disciples that he's going to build his church. And we know that the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And as we progress in the book even farther, we come to the last chapter of the gospel of Matthew and Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And that includes Gentiles as well. I hope we we see the point, and I know it was belabored some, but the point that Matthew wants to make it known that Jesus is a Messiah, not for just the people of Israel, but for Gentiles as well. Now on the heels of, of that reference to Isaiah, Matthew says in verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, see that expression right there, from that time. That expression takes us back to the time that Jesus went and lived in Capernaum, which we see in verse 13. So it was from the time that Jesus moved into this dark place of Capernaum that he began to preach. And the content of Jesus' preaching, as verse 17 tells us, began with the word repent. And a lot could be said about the doctrine of repentance. We could talk about the nature of repentance. We could talk about the reasons for repentance or the motivations behind repentance, etc., etc. But where our attention is drawn in Matthew 4, 17 is to the fact that repentance is a turning from something. It's a turning from Something that's inherent in the idea of repentance. And since we just saw the usage of Isaiah to depict the people in Galilee as a people dwelling in darkness, we should see that what Jesus is preaching they must turn from is darkness. Now it probably goes without saying, but the darkness being referred to here is not darkness in the sense of the absence of photosynthesis. Um... Thank you for that, James. Uh, In other words, darkness does not refer to the experience that someone might have as they walk into a room and the light switch is turned off. That's not the idea of darkness here. The kind of darkness being referred to here is simply spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. And one Greek lexicon says that this darkness refers to the state of unbelievers and of the godless. This way of viewing darkness is the same way darkness is being viewed in other passages in the New Testament. In John 3, 19, Jesus says that people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So you can see here in those words the relationship of darkness with evil deeds. The Apostle Paul also using the word this way says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness... Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You can observe here that lawlessness, that is the breaking of God's law, is equated with darkness. And we could line up many more verses as 
marching soldiers, each of which keep in step with this same direction of understanding darkness. But sufficient is it for us to recognize that darkness is spiritual darkness here. As such, we can conclude that when Jesus came into Capernaum and began to preach, he was calling them away from a path of spiritual darkness and onto a path of spiritual light. Now, to illustrate this, I I drew a very detailed and highly artistic piece of art that I want to share with you in just a moment. Uh, But but before I do, I just want to tell you that um, this comes from this last week of explaining to Calvin uh, one night when he was having a tough time sleeping some things about this passage, and so I, I talked to him about repentance. Not because I thought he needed to repent of not going to sleep, but um, because I knew I was preaching this week and wanted to give him just a little taste of what I was going to talk about. But anyways, um, I think I've kept you in enough suspense. Here is the drawing. Picasso. Um, Yeah, okay. Thank you for being impressed. But simply put, I mean, repentance, according to Matthew, is a turning from the road of darkness to the road of light. And uh, you can see right there with the word repentance and the little arrow, with the arrow that's moving off the path, that's, that's repentance right there in case you missed it. Calvin got it. So I thought you guys might as well. But this is, this is what Matthew's talking about right here. He's simply showing that when Jesus showed up to preach in Capernaum, what he was calling those people to was a turning away from the road of darkness to a road of light. And if we, if we want to speak about repentance in real personal terms, and I, I think we should, repentance is simply the turning from submission to sin to submission to Jesus. Just real simple. Turning from submission to sin to submission to, Z, uh, to Jesus. It is a resolve of the whole heart to say no to sin and yes to Christ. So what this means is that repentance is more than a change of mind. There are those who, in our day, and even throughout the whole church, who've deflated the meaning of repentance, so that what is left is merely the involvement of the mind, uh, just an intellectual assent to some facts about who Jesus is. Now, of course, repentance does involve the changing of our intellect from either like vacuous thoughts, that is, we don't have any thoughts about Jesus, or to erroneous thoughts about Jesus. So without question, repentance involves that. But our intellect, we need to be reminded, is only a part of our souls. Okay, We, we need to recognize that our souls are mind, will, and emotions. This involves the entirety of our inner being. And so repentance really is all that we are sold out to all of Christ. John MacArthur in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, which if you have yet to read that book, let me just encourage you to read that book. He said that when Jesus called those people in Galilee to repentance, he was calling them to a full-orbed repentance, which was more than changing one's mind. I just want to read this quote to you. This is what MacArthur says. He says that when Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, those who heard him understood the message. With their rich heritage in Old Testament and rabbinical teaching, his hearers would not have been confused about the meaning of repentance. They knew he was calling for far more than simply a change of mind or a new perspective on who he was. 
Repentance to them meant a complete surrender of their will and an inevitable change of behavior, a new way of life, not just a different opinion. They realized he was calling them to admit their sin and turn from it, to be converted, to turn around, to forsake their sin and selfishness and follow him instead. This is all that we are sold out to all of Christ. And by the way, I think this makes sense if we just meditate on this. If Jesus came preaching a gospel that demanded just a part of us, that would mean that Jesus really isn't interested in having our full devotion. He would be saying, you give me that part of your life, but you don't need to give me any part of any other part of your life. I'll take some of your thoughts, but I don't want your affections. That doesn't fit with the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a Lord who's worthy of ownership of every facet of our being. So you see, a half-baked repentance leads to a half-baked Lord. And Jesus won't have that. He is worthy of it all. So repentance is a resolve of the whole person to turn away from darkness to light. Amen? Now you might be saying at this point, Matt, I understand, but if I'm honest with myself, my repentance has always been imperfect. Even from the moment I first repented and trusted in Christ, I can't say that my repentance has ever been perfect. My response to that would be this. Aren't you glad that your salvation is not based on how perfect your repentance is, but how perfect Jesus is? You know, Jesus didn't call us to have faith in our faith or trust in our repentance as the basis of our salvation. And so even if we came to Christ on two limping legs of faith and repentance, if we came to him earnestly, that's enough. And why? It's because we came to him. He's the sufficient one in the relationship, not us. So don't be discouraged if your repentance isn't perfect. But I will say as a caution, though our repentance isn't perfect, we must not be lulled into thinking that we can stay that way. Nothing that has yet to be perfected in our Christian lives should be an excuse for halting progress. Just because my car doesn't have a radio doesn't mean I shouldn't drive it, right? Some of you are like, no, I have to have a radio in my car if I'm going to drive it, okay? Or, or if I have a couple of drops of oil leaking from my engine, that doesn't mean I shouldn't drive it, right, Gunner? No, I thought you were going to say amen to that one. No, just because there's some problems, okay, just because that we're broken doesn't mean we shouldn't progress in our Christian lives. Uh, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, right? What he began, he's going to perfect, and in between the beginning and the perfecting is the ongoing progressive work of sanctification. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that repentance is a work of God that he started within you, and he's going to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So on the one hand, we should not be discouraged that our Imperfect repentance is the reality of our lives now, but we should also not let that move us away from continuing on in progressive sanctification. And as we do, we have this promise. I love this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, and that involves his pleasure that we turn from sin to righteousness. God will work that within us.
Now, after the summary of Jesus' message there in verse 17, Matthew shows Jesus calling his first disciples. Let's pick back up there and read. Verse 18 says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Just some simple observations to make here. This may seem a bit redundant, but let's just get some acclamation to these verses here. The circumstance in which Jesus saw Peter and Andrew was he was walking by the Sea of Galilee. The activity they were engaged in was casting a net into the sea. And the reason they were casting their net into the sea was because they were fishermen. Now this casting a net into the sea is clarifying because it tells us what kind of fishing that they were doing. Uh, They were net fishing. This is uh, where there were weights around the perimeter of this net. And as you threw the net into the water, it spread out and would sink to the bottom because of the weights. And if there were fish in between the bottom and that net, it would engulf the fish and you could then bring in the net and hopefully you had some fish, okay? Now, to be distinguished here, there's fishing and catching, right? We have some fishermen in this church and... There's a difference between going out with fishing and then actually catching something, right? Now, some of us would say, I love to go fishing even if I don't catch anything. But let's just be honest. I mean, there's a lot of joy in catching things, right? I like catching things. But just just to be clear also about something else, when we're talking about fishing here, we are not talking about this kind of fishing, right? Again, it's this kind of fishing. So just that'll, that'll be significant here in a little bit when we see what Jesus meant about fishing for men. But that's what they were doing. They were, they were fishermen, and, and it's also relevant here that the fact that uh, they were out there fishing is not uh, they were out there for recreational activity, all right? This is not Peter and Andrew just out there having some fun in their masculine nothing boxes, if you know what I mean, and three of you do. They weren't doing this for recreation. They were doing this for occupation. This is what they did for a living. Their whole livelihood was wrapped up in net fishing. Now, this is significant because when Jesus saw them fishing, verse 19, he said to them, notice, follow me, literally, come behind me, and I will make you fishers of men. What he was saying to Peter and Andrew was, leave behind your occupation for a new one. And that's a big deal. But, as we, but, but he was saying even more to the other two brothers mentioned in this passage. Notice James and John there in verses 21 and 22. And observe from 22 what James and John had to leave. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Uh, this was also no small demand of Jesus. Not only was Jesus calling James and John away from their occupation, he was calling them away from their father. The commentator John Nolan captures well the effect of this. He says this. He says that leaving their father adds the dimension of family disruption to the cost of discipleship. I mean, this would disrupt family cohesion by them leaving to follow Jesus. Jesus was demanding then from these first disciples some significant sacrifice. And we learn that following Jesus then is pictured as costly. This should remind us of a boatload of examples. No pun intended. That showed discipleship was 
or discipleship with Christ is a costly matter. And he said in a number of places, just to rehearse these things, he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In another place, he said, if anyone wishes to find his life, he must lose it. And then another place, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Discipleship, that is following Jesus, comes with a cost in this life. Now, does this mean that the cost of every disciple is going to look the same? Are we, are we all expected to leave occupation and family to follow Jesus? Well, the simple answer is that the costliness of one person might look different than the costliness of another person. This is where the quote by Douglas O'Donnell is pastorally helpful. He says that we won't all be leaving the fishing profession to be called apostles or to be martyred for the faith. I know that. But I also know that when Christ calls you to repent and follow him, you better expect to be disrupted from your ordinary life. You better expect to sever relationships, pierce your bank account, and cut off all those sins that easily entangle you. You better expect some changes and many more. Following Christ is costly. Even the ongoing cost is a reality for disciples of Christ, right? Those of us in this room who have already repented of our sins and trusted in Christ maybe a year ago, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, however many years ago, we realize that following Christ is still costly, amen? And the costliness of following Christ can lead to us having to give up comfort, selfishness, pride, riches, occupation, relationships, and maybe even life itself. But we must be willing to sacrifice everything, right? Anything and everything, and put it on the altar if it comes in conflict with the desires of King Jesus. The cost of discipleship is high, and if we think this morning... Well, Pastor Matt is really laying it on thick. Let me remind you that this is just what the scripture says. Um, I'm not smart enough to come up with these things. All right, I'm not clever enough to say these things. But this is the reality of following Christ. Whatever comes in the way of being a follower of Jesus, of doing his will, and submitting to his lordship, we must give that up. Romans 12 says we're a, a living and holy sacrifice. We're to offer ourselves as that in the following of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And for those first disciples, the cost was their occupation and family cohesion. Jesus was calling them to come behind him and become fishers of men. And this is precisely what they did. Notice the quickness, though, with which they responded to Jesus. Verse 20 says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. Uh, Matthew no doubt put this here because, number one, it really was how those disciples first responded. But number two, this was the way the original readers of Matthew's gospel to, were to respond as well. Matthew didn't want to give any wiggle room for hesitancy. He wanted uh, them to follow suit in their response of Christ. And again, Jesus, after all, is a commanding king who demands quick affirmation. Jesus says, we say yes I just hesitated there did you notice that 
not for effect, but because I was trying to think of what I was supposed to say. So anyways, just letting you in on my world a little bit. This is what's going on in Matt Harkey's mind right now. All right, back on track. Uh, maybe you are thinking, though, as I was thinking when I was studying this passage this last week, oh, how lovely it would be if I were always quick to respond to Christ. Ever been there? Um, let no root of unbitterness spring up among you. Yes, sir. Uh, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Yes, sir. Uh, be anxious for nothing. Yes, sir. And I'm smiling while I'm saying yes, sir, because obedience to the Lord is joyful. Amen. But would that we were like that every time, but we're not, are we, church? We aren't. You know, when we sing Trust and Obey, I love that song, there are a couple lines in there that go this way. What he says we will do. Where he sins we will go. Those are some good words to sing, but when you sing those words, do you ever have the thought, I haven't lived up to those words? There have been times when I hesitated in doing God's will. If you've ever had that thought, then you're not alone. And I think we've all had that thought to some degree or another. We've all realized our obedience could be quicker. And for a really silly illustration, okay, maybe we should be like quilted quicker picker-upper from Bounty. Okay, we're going to have to edit that from the message. Maybe we should be a little bit more quick, though, in our response. When the Lord says, jump, say, yes, sir. How high do you want me to jump? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? I will go. I will do it because you are the king and you're worthy of it all. And I love you because you first love me and you're worthy to be followed. And whatever way you're leading me must be good because you're a good king. And we have this notion, right, that Jesus is about the business of being a killjoy, right? And I think for some people, before they come to Christ, that may be the thing that trips them up. They think, oh, those Christians, they're just so stuffy. And they don't have any joy whatsoever. But that's not following Jesus Christ, is it? Following Christ is the most joyful thing in all of the universe. And this is why we're going to see in the book of Matthew that, that, that finding Christ is like finding a pearl of great price. That finding Christ is like finding a, a treasure hidden in a field going and selling everything because I want to buy that field and have that treasure in that field. Jesus is a treasure and a pearl of great price. And we need to be remembered about that. Following Jesus is a joy, amen? The greatest joy in all the world. And yet we forget that at moments, don't we? We forget that, man, there's something else that I'm more interested in. That prevents us from being quick to respond to him when he says things. But again, I just want to say some things that hopefully are pastorally helpful. We've realized at times that our obedience could be quicker, and it's not. But thank the Lord for the gift of repentance. Thank the Lord for progressive sanctification. We're in progress. Practical holiness, it does not happen instantly. 
It happens over time. And so this led me to think that another way to think about progressive sanctification is like this. It's the ongoing development in our hearts of a faster, favorable response to God's gracious demands. Let me say that again. It's the ongoing development in our hearts of a faster, favorable response to God's gracious demands. In other words, it's the training of our hearts to more closely align with that song that we like to sing. What he says, we will do. Where he sins, we will go. That's progressive sanctification. And might the Lord help us in doing that very thing. Now, there is a specific area that this passage challenges us in. It's the occupation that Jesus called those first disciples to, namely being fishers of men. Now, uh, what is a fisher of men? We know that these first disciples were once fishermen. But Jesus was calling them to be fishers of men. What is a, a fisher of men? Well, if we think of the fact that Jesus relates the fisher of men metaphor to the literal idea of being a fisherman, we're on good footing to begin to figure out what he means. And if we think about the act of fishing in Jesus' analogy here, we can envision someone casting out a net into the waters. And that act of casting that net is an attempt to catch some fish. Well, the speaking of the gospel is like throwing that net out there. You're attempting to catch not fish, but men's hearts. So the analogy seems pretty cut and dry. Being a fisher of men is the attempt of catching men's hearts with the gospel. And to say that again, being a fisher of men is the attempt of catching men's hearts with the gospel. Now, at a very basic level, being a fisher of men involves the evangelization of of the lost. It's sharing the gospel of salvation with another person who has yet to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. That, at a very basic level, is what being a fisher of men involves. Evangelism. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said that there are a couple of things that that the preacher could preach on, right, that will make people nervous. And two things are, what are they? Giving and evangelism. Yes, okay. And I also heard people say giving and prayer or money and prayer that makes people nervous. And if that's the normal way in which people get nervous about particular topics, I thought maybe we should add a third one to it, and it's evangelism. Right? The, the thought of having to sit in front of another person or a group of people and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ can be a nerve-wracking thing, isn't it? If we're just honest with ourselves, we've all experienced that, I'm sure. Okay? Now, one of the things that, um, that might help in us alleviating some of those nerves is to remember something very significant that is, I think, right at the heart of the analogy here of us being fishers of men, and that is that what we are involved in is fishing, not catching, okay? We are fishers of men, not catchers of men. Uh, We we are the ones who um, put the net out there, and then God does the one of putting the fish in the net. Uh, God is the one that saves people, and Paul said this as much when he said that I planted and Apollos watered, but God, what? He gave the increase or he caused the growth. God is the one 
who's responsible for changing men's hearts, right? And so that is the catching that's involved here. But we, as the church, are supposed to be out there faithfully throwing the net and just fishing for men and see if God puts any fish, i.e. men, their hearts in that net. We're supposed to be faithful to release the net. Charles Spurgeon had a really good reminder when he said this. He said that we are not responsible for the souls that are saved, but we are responsible for the gospel that is preached and for the way in which we preach it. Uh, We uh, need this reminder, I think. Um, We must remember that we don't save people. Uh, We tell the gospel to others and we make sure that we do it right and we say it rightly. We say it according to God's word. We don't water it down. Uh, We don't leave out repentance. And we don't reduce the response of people to merely walking an aisle or saying a prayer. But repenting and trusting in a particular person. And so what we do is we, we tell people the, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died to make men right with God so that anyone who repents and trusts in Christ will have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what we do. We just preach that gospel. We just tell that gospel to people. And I think it's significant because obviously I'm using preach and Charles Spurgeon is using preach and Uh, you may think that, well, this is just about people that get up and preach, and they're supposed to be the ones that evangelize the lost. But I think it's quite interesting that if you think about what following Jesus and discipleship is sort of arranged like, even in this passage in in the greater gospel of the gospel of Matthew, it's very simply the coming behind the Lord Jesus and doing what he did. Okay, when he called those first disciples, he literally was saying, come behind them or become behind him. All right. Follow him and what he was doing. And of course, those disciples, they were to turn around and and say to what other disciples, follow me as I follow Christ. And so discipleship is really just getting people behind us to follow the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ. He told people about himself. He told people about the good news of the kingdom. And then that's what we're supposed to do as well. Now, I think that it's, it's possible to think that we can reduce the fishing of men just to evangelizing the lost. But it's interesting that if God does put a catch in the net, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bring them in, right? That's what you would do if you were fishing with that big net. You had a rope on it. If fish got in the net, you, you brought them in. And you can see there in the bringing in of the hearts of men, uh, what Jesus talks about in the not Olivet Discourse. I've been thinking a lot about the Olivet Discourse lately. Uh, no, the, the great commission of Matthew 28, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Baptizing and teaching. If God puts the fish in the net, we bring them in, we baptize them, and we teach them. That's making fishers of men. It's not just evangelizing, and it's not just discipleship. It's both of these things. And any church or any, any person, any Christian can get out of kilter about those two things. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure we ride the balance there. We need to be faithful as evangelists. We need to be faithful in discipleship. And I say that not as someone who's sort of disinterested or disconnected. I have the privilege of being in pastoral ministry but I don't think that when I go home and I'm around my kids that I get to check out. 
that I get to not teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and throw the net over them in hopes that God would wrap them up in the net of the gospel and save them. I also don't think that I'm just a person who lives in a house at 2309 West Twin Oak Street, Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, disconnected from my neighbors as well. God put me there amongst those neighbors with the hope that those who don't know Jesus might come to know him. And brothers and sisters, that is what living on mission for Jesus is supposed to be like. And so as I preach these words, I need to be like that one who preaches it, runs down there and listens to it and does it. Because I myself need to be a faithful evangelist. We all do. God puts you in relationship with unbelievers, not for the purpose of merely having the benefit of that relationship, but for the purpose of telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded about that. And I, I hope that, that we're reminded this morning that regardless of whether we're talking about evangelism or discipleship, whatever work that God has for us to do, all the work that God has for us to do, he gives us his promise that when we take a step, he's fueling the energy to do it. We're not doing this alone. And we're doing this, quite frankly, for a kingdom that is everlasting. And while we may find ourselves running into to people that are angry about us, see John the Baptist for just preaching truth, we may find people that get angry with us. We need, we need to remember, we don't have to be angry with them, right? And, and by the way, we're also living for a different kingdom, a kingdom that's everlasting. This life is short, right? Let's live it for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if there's anything that we said this morning, you're like, man, I really need to work on that. Just make a note of that. Note bene, write it out. By the grace of God, take steps of of repentance that's fueled by the grace of God this week. And um, let's enjoy walking with the Lord this week. He's worthy. Amen. Let's pray.